Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Listening to the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Tuesday, April the 13th. Um, let me lead off with a headline that you have likely not heard, but um, uh, I am aware of because I have friends who one of their daughters was born on the island of St. Vincent, and so um, they have asked for prayers for people whom they know there. The island of St. Vincent is um, has an active volcano. That volcano erupted. Um, and it is expected that there will be continued eruptions over the coming weeks. And the damage is already devastating, but the damage to crops and water are the big concern. Um, the people there under threat of having their entire island blanketed with so much hot ash that there will be no drinkable water and there will be no crops. And so that is, um, uh, you can imagine, if you would for just a moment, living on an island where there will be no drinking water and there will be no crops. Um, that is obviously um, an existential threat. So the uh, the volcano on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent began a series of explosive eruptions on April the 9th. I'm reading this from the Wall Street Journal. The clouds of hot ash, 20,000 feet in the air, blanketed much of the island, um, causing uh, electricity outages and contamination of water. Um, the uh, uh, Richard Robertson, who's a professor of geology at the University of the West Indies Seismic Research Center, said this, I suspect that all the buildings and the structures on the mountain are destroyed, and I shudder to think if any living creature were on the mountain at the time, if anything was there, man, animal, anything, they are now gone. Um, there are, however, thanks be to God, no reports of deaths or injuries uh, 16,000 residents who lived, you know, near the near the volcano in proximity to it have been evacuated. Um, but that just means they've been evacuated to another part of the island, um, which is now uh, covered with ash. So uh, let's be praying for the people of St. Vincent and let's prepare ourselves because they are a near neighbor. They are just in uh, in the Caribbean to the south of us. Today is the start of Ramadan. Um, for Muslims, Ramadan is the uh, holiest month of the year. It is a month of fasting and prayer. Um, it began last night when the moon was sighted over Mecca. That's the uh, beginning of Ramadan. It's considered um, Islam's holiest month. In Muslim tradition, uh, this is the time of the year when the Quran was revealed to the one they call the Prophet Muhammad in 610 uh, A.D., and um, and so for the next 30 days, most of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims will be fasting from dawn to dusk. So be a good neighbor. Do not invite uh, your Muslim neighbor to lunch because that's just rude. Um, however, consider consider accepting a, an invitation to uh, to share a meal with them after sunset. So they fast from dawn to dusk. Uh, each day ends with an evening meal. Called the, uh, called the iftar, traditionally begins by eating a date or something sweet, and the meal is then often shared with neighbors and friends 
Um, and so you might consider accepting an invitation in the next 30 days to share in an iftar with a Muslim neighbor. Um, and so the basic goal of the fast is uh, in is is in Islam the pur- the purification of one's mind and body while increasing a person's patience and generosity toward others. Um, and so uh, make us make yourself a student of what is happening with our Muslim neighbors. 1.6 billion people. No one is more concerned um, about having them illuminated to the light of Christ than God. Right. So you can know that praying for your Muslim neighbors in this season um, is certainly going to be a prayer that is aligned with the will of the Father. No one wants to see an awakening in the Muslim world more than God. So trust that he's got a plan. Be open to whatever role he calls you to play. Um, And let's show respect for Muslims and their observance of this fast. Uh, While we don't share their beliefs, their devotion and commitment are worthy of respect and notable. Uh, Christ teaches that we are to love all people regardless of their beliefs. You might read Luke 10, 27. And the Word of God tells us to show proper respect to everyone, 1 Peter 2, 17. And so I want you to consider that as you consider our Muslim neighbors as they enter into this month of Ramadan. Let us also be praying that God would speak in powerful and supernatural ways over the next several weeks, that he would indeed bring an awakening Uh, in the Muslim world. All right, next up, Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're going to cover some medical headlines. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Jeff, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you. Good morning. It's great to have you. All right, let's uh, let's talk about COVID headlines. I'm just going to let you start where you want to start because there are many. There are. I mean, if you look at the numbers right now, globally, almost 136, 137 million cases with almost 3 million deaths here in the United States. Total number of cases uh, around 32 million uh, and uh, almost 560,000 deaths. So uh, I think a lot of people, the the numbers just are so staggering, they tend to forget it. But uh, one of the headlines that we're seeing is that now as of the 1st of April, uh, the most dominant strain here in the United States is actually a variant of the original strain. And that was uh, a variant that was discovered in the United Kingdom back late last fall. It's known as the B117 variant. Uh, and as of April 7th, the CDC has said this is now the most dominant strain in the United States. And it, it might be a little confusing for your listeners to kind of say, well, what what exactly is a variant? And to understand variants, you need to understand the concept of mutations. And so viruses are constantly dividing, and each time they divide, they have to duplicate their genetic material and they need to duplicate it exactly and completely and correctly but viruses don't do a very good job of doing that so it's not uncommon for them to make a mistake in that duplication that's called a mutation and so it happens very frequently in viruses and then when you have a series of mutations that kind of become stable 
that becomes a variant. And we're seeing variants pop up all over the world. And this particular variant is concerning because it is more transmissible, about 50% more transmissible. It's now tending to infect young people more than the original strain. And also, it, it's got higher mortality. If you happen to get this strain, uh, there's a 65% chance of greater mortality with it. So that's the bad news. The good news is that all of our vaccines appear to be very effective against this UK variant. So that's one of the headlines that's out there. All right. I'm going to um, pivot topics with you if I can. We just heard in the news this morning that 40 percent of all U.S. abortions are now chemical abortions. I want you to remind us what that means. Um, and then let's talk about the Equality Act and any concerns that you have from uh, from CMDA about it. Yeah, chemical abortions, and I like that term, it's also called medical abortions. We don't think there is anything such as a medical abortion as Christians. But chemical abortions are a two-stage process. The first stage is giving a a medication that we know as RU486. It's called mifepristone. It is an anti-progesterone, and progesterone is a critical hormone that women produce early in pregnancy. And so this mifepristone actually battles and blocks the action of progesterone on this new developing pregnancy, and it, in effect, uh, kills the baby. The second stage is then giving a, uh, a medication that causes the uterus to contract and and expel that dead pregnancy. And uh, chemical uh, abortion is now legal in the United States up until 10 weeks. Uh, It is very dangerous. Uh, There was a report just released uh, in a journal article that talked about the fact that women uh, can die from this if it's not managed properly. And we just went through a time about a year ago where the, uh, the FDA had previously said that in order to be prescribed the medications to undergo a chemical abortion, you had to be seen by a physician, have the pregnancy documented as inside the uterus, and to rule out what we call an ectopic pregnancy. But then there were the Planned Parenthood forces kind of put that ruling aside until just recently the courts have restored it. And so it, it is a, a, a dangerous medication. Women have died uh, from ruptured uh, ectopic pregnancies. They have died from infections. They have been hospitalized. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people think that this is very safe and easy to do when, in fact, the truth is the opposite. All right. Um, Dr. Jeff Barrows and I are going to take a very brief break. Uh, you can find... Well, you can find tons of good resources at cmda.org. That's the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk about the Equality Act, medical concerns that Jeff has with it. We're also going to talk about legislation, um, particularly in Arkansas. That's uh, sort of what we're going to highlight, but it's it's coming to a community near you, certainly a state uh, in which you live, related to um, people who believe they are living in the wrong body and want to have surgery to change their gender. And so I'm you 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 hear me talking about that in a way that um 
Uh, I'm trying to avoid describing these individuals as transgender, and we can talk about why I'm avoiding that language when we come back. But all of that is next on Mornings with Carmen. We need a strong guy. Yeah. We need the real guy. Continuing my conversation with Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at cmda.org. Jeff, let's talk about the Equality Act and the concerns that you have uh, have with it. Yes, uh, Carmen. The Equality Act, like so many bills today, has a very misleading name. And, and, you know, I know the term radical is thrown a lot around a lot, and I try not to overstate things. But I have to say that in reading through this bill, this is a radical bill that would completely change the legal landscape for Christians in this country. And let me just start by saying that we at CMDA fully agree that no healthcare professional should ever refuse to care for someone simply on the basis that they identify as a sexual minority. And we believe that all persons should receive medical care regardless of how they self-identify. But what this bill will do is give sexual minorities unequal, unparalleled legal legal persuasive power over those who oppose their lifestyle. And it specifically uh, calls out the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 and says that any claim uh, that tries to go to that Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, cannot be accepted on the basis of of uh, this new law. In other words, it completely neutralizes the RIFRA. And so, for us in the healthcare profession, for instance, uh, we would be in a position that if we did not agree to give someone cross-sex hormones or to perform a particular surgery that would help in their transition to their perceived gender, we would be Uh, accused of discrimination and taken to court. And I can say that that definitely will happen because it's already happening in California where many people are are being taken to court. For instance, an OBGYN refused to take out a normal uterus on a woman who was identifying as a male. So this is a very dangerous piece of legislation. And let's let's remind our listeners, um, you know, what what is health care? What is good medicine. Um, you know, it's my understanding that, you know, if, if somebody showed up and said, I identify as an, you know, as an armless person, a, a doctor would not remove their arms. And so I think we're, that's the kind of conversation that we need to figure out how to have because a person shows up and says, I, I, I do not identify as a woman. It's, it still doesn't make it right to remove the parts of her body that, are there because she's a woman like I this is the part that's so hard for for me and and when we talk about um prescribing drugs that are going to halt the natural development of a person um that doesn't seem like medicine either not at all and and you're using a great example another similar one would be someone who's dealing with anorexia nervosa and they perceive their body as being fat so I, i think it would be malpractice for any practitioner to take a patient who is suffering from anorexia nervosa and submit them to liposuction. 
we just wouldn't do that. And it's interesting, the United Kingdom is ahead of us on this. Uh, they had a, a case a year ago where, with Tavistock that they found uh, that these m procedures, especially in minors, are very experimental. They've actually done some good reporting and, and, and uh, summarized the literature and, and really realized that what we're talking about is really nothing less than experimentation on children. Yeah, it's just so tragic. All right, well, let's let's talk then about um, legislation in Arkansas that's actually related to this. What's going on there? Well, Arkansas is the first state in our country that has finally come to its senses <laughs> and said we will not allow healthcare practitioners in this state to give puberty blockers to minors or cross-sex hormones to minors or engage in any surgical procedure that, again, will change the perceived gender of that person. And so it completely prohibits any type of gender therapy for minors under the age of 18. And I think that needs to be taken up by every state across the country, if not the federal government. And it's it's really the first state to come to its senses regarding this whole craziness with transgenderism. Now, of course, that's not the way what's happening in Arkansas is being uh, presented in the news media. It's uh, it's being presented as if health care is being denied to transgender individuals. And I um, uh, I have begun, Jeff, resisting the language of even describing someone as a transgender individual, um, and I like the way that you, uh, the, the language that you use. So talk, talk with us about how to talk about people who suffer from gender dysphoria. Well, I would first of all say that this is a very real problem, and it causes very real suffering, just like those that have anorexia nervosa. It's a, it's a real suffering that they have. They, they believe they are in the wrong body, and for decades and, and centuries, it's all been, always been thought of as a mental problem. Um, but now, of course, a lot of medical societies have said, no, the problem is the body. And so I, I think as Christians, when we talk about it, we do need to be careful with our language. Uh, there are people that are pushing what's called gender affirmation th uh, therapy. Uh, I don't like that term. Uh, I, I rather use uh, treatment that is trying to change the perceived gender of the person. Biological sex, uh, as we all know, is, is given to us at birth and by God. We are either male or we are female. That's the way he created us. So I agree. We do need to be very careful on how we address um, the language as we talk about this, especially in this kind of a situation where we're talking about not individuals, but a whole ideology. And uh, now when you're talking to the patients, I think we need to be respectful. I, I know we talk about preferred pronouns often. I generally just recommend our healthcare professionals use the, the name of the individual, show respect that way so that they don't get caught in this whole pronoun um, controversy. Oh, I think that's uh, I think that is really helpful. Um, and it, yeah, so I just it's such a complex issue and it seems like um, it should not be, but it is. And it is the challenge of our generation. And so thank you for helping us sort through it. If you guys need resources on this and lots of other medical uh, ethic, ethics topics, medical ethics topics, topics in medical ethics. Check uh, check out all of the resources that are available to you at cmda.org. That's the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us again today. 
A pleasure to be with you again, Carmen. Thank you. Thank you. We got to take a break for break point. I'm pretty sure that uh, that my friend John Stone Street is talking today about the first day of Ramadan. You may think that this is the most challenging period in all of American history, uh, but, you know, let's pause and just recognize that not only have we gone to war with others, we've actually gone to actual war with one another. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant is a character who looms large in American history during that during that period of time. But there are some stories about him and his life that I'm betting you don't know. Craig Von Busick joins me next. He's the author of Victor the final battle of Ulysses S. Grant. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. Scripture often describes our behavior as the clothes we wear. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter urges us to be clothed with humility. David speaks of evil people who clothe themselves with cursing. Garments can symbolize character, and like his garment, Jesus' character was seamless. The character of Jesus was a seamless fabric woven from heaven to earth, from God's thoughts to Jesus' actions, from God's tears to Jesus' compassion, from God's word to Jesus' response. All one piece, a picture of the character of Jesus. But when Christ was nailed to the cross, he took off his robe of seamless perfection and assumed a different wardrobe, the wardrobe of indignity. He wore our sin so we could wear his righteousness. This is Max Licato. is an author and an all-around good guy. You can find him at Von Busick, B-U-S-E-C-K, vonbusick.com. He joins me to do- today with his brand new book, Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. Craig, welcome back. Carmen, so good to be with you. Thank you. All right, it's fun to have you. Let's start with this. Paint the picture of the world in which Ulysses S. Grant lived. Well, we talk about what's going on today in the news and uh, what's happening uh, with the racial strife and all of the different political things. Uh, the world of, of Ulysses S. Grant was way worse, and it's hard for us to really fathom that right now, but he was in the middle of a civil war, and he was called upon to um, to fight that. But before he did, and this is something that people need to realize about Grant, uh, you know, he had married into a slaveholding family and was given a slave by his father-in-law who worked along with him on his farm. But as the issue of slavery was tearing apart the country, racial slavery, tearing apart the country, Grant was in a terrible state. There was a, a nationwide depression, and as a farmer, he was just failing. And yet he gave freedom to that slave because he saw that slavery was a cancer that needed to be dealt with. And then, of course, he moved north, got into the war, and the rest we know is history. Um, the rest we know as history. Um, 
I think that one of the conversations that your book provokes is that battles are not all fought on battlefields. Um, There is a story in here about a telegraph officer who censored communications. People who are having their communications censored today uh, might appreciate that storyline. There's the impeachment trial of a president. There's a fellow military officer who, frankly, wanted to end Grant's career. And, yes, there is an American Civil War. Maybe you could take one of those um, one of those stories that that appears in uh, in this most excellent book, it's called Victor, the Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. Maybe you could tell us one of those stories. Well, it's it's really interesting because one of the key figures in this book uh, later on, after Grant goes through the presidency and then uh, he has his own uh, investment firm and his partner was a shyster and uh, was the Bernie Madoff of the 1880s and stole all this money and Grant ended up penniless and then he was um, – diagnosed with incurable throat cancer. And so he's dying with no money and he has to take care of his wife. So he partners with the one and only Mark Twain, who had his own publishing company, uh, to write his memoirs. Uh, But that's the end of the book. But I want to bring up Mark Twain because he said this about history. And it goes a little bit against what we hear quite often. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but history rhymes. And what you just said was like a rhyme of what's happening today, and yet it was happening in the 1860s through the 1880s. And so I think one of the uh, the things that you had, had raised was <clears throat> the whole aspect of the media and the uh, – false narratives and and all this kind of thing. And, you know, in Grant's day, there was this uh, Confederate sympathizer who worked in the telegraph office, and he was blocking Grant's telegraphs, and it almost cost Grant his military career. Uh, but fortunately, at the, at the last minute, uh, truth came out, and Grant was able to move on, and it actually led to a great victory at Fort Donelson. And so I think the key for us, and you know, Grant as a leader, um, he really was someone who pushed forward, pushed forward, pushed forward. He always believed, and this is one of the things that General Sherman said about Grant, he always believed in ultimate success. And so I think that's something that we, as we're going through these difficulties and we're coming against censorship and we're coming against false narratives and even slander, we need to believe that truth in the end will win out. So when you talk about Fort Donaldson, man, you're talking about uh, literally my neck of the woods. And so, yeah, I mean, when you talk about history rhyming, there are storylines in here um, and actual places you can go to visit and see and um, and walk. Um, so I want to talk about the what you call the last battle. Um, I want to talk about what happened in this Ponzi scheme. I mean, you've, you've referred to this as like the Bernie Madoff, you know, the scheme of the day. Um, what happened in the Ponzi scheme that left Grant and his family and lots of other people who trusted him um, bankrupt? Well, Grant had come out of the presidency without any pension. They didn't have a pension for presidents until Harry Truman. And so he needed to find a job, which is kind of funny, you know, savior of the union, two-term president, and he didn't have any money. And so he went into business with his son, Buck, and a person that they called the young Napoleon of Wall Street, Ferdinand Ward. 
and they thought that they were millionaires after just a short amount of time, but it was a giant Ponzi scheme. Ward was not investing anything. It was taking from Peter to pay Paul, and so after a couple of years, the whole house of cards collapsed, and Grant found himself without any money. All of his children were without money. Uh, even he had friends in the military and even common soldiers who had invested because of him who lost everything. It was one of the greatest schemes and one of the greatest uh, tragedies on Wall Street in history, of, in the history of this country. And so now you've got, the, an, again, this president, this this uh, general who had won the war and, and secured freedom um, without any money. And so he had to figure out what he was going to do. And sadly, not too long after that, he started to have pain in his throat. And he went to a doctor and the doctor looked down his throat and knew right away. And Greg could see from the look on his face that it was cancer. And so now he's dying of cancer without any money. And so he knew that the only way that he could make money in the short time he had left was to write his memoirs. And so he partnered with Mark Twain. And it's an amazing thing because Grant worked every day in unbelievable pain. He had throat cancer, which is a terribly painful way to die. And yet he refused to take morphine or any narcotics during the day so that he could keep his mind clear. And he wrote every day on a yellow legal pad, except for the days when he was just too weak, and there were some of those days. But most days he wrote and wrote and wrote. He finished those memoirs four days before he died, and in the end they ended up making for his wife – $450,000, which today would be more than $10 million. But not only did he take care of his wife and his family, but he confronted the lies of the Lost Cause School that said that the Civil War was not about slavery, race-based slavery, but about tariffs or about state rights. And he said no. Very clearly, this war was about slavery. And when he spoke with uh, the Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, uh, Bismarck said, it was so sad that you had this civil war. And Grant said, we had to do it. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, you, you, know, you had to uh, save the Union, right? He said, not only that, we had to eradicate slavery. It was a cancer upon our, our country, and we had to get rid of it. And so Grant makes it very clear what the war was all about. And then the cool thing was is that when he ran for president, his slogan was, let us have peace. And I think that that is a message for us today. Um, I'm I'm making some notes because I think that um, the the things that you've highlighted are so important. The book is Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. The author is Craig Von Busick. We will be right back. All right, I'm talking with author Craig Von Busick. You can find him at Von Busick, B-U-S-E-C-K dot com. The book is Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. And lest you think it's like a boring history book, um, au contraire, it's written in <laughs> it's written in the voice of a dying man. Talk with us about the narrative approach you took. Well, I really believe in that whole approach because people don't want, you know, I mean, we get enough of dry history in high school and college textbooks. Uh, people are not looking for that. They're looking for story because we resonate with story. I think that that is something in us that God had put in us, uh, and it goes all the way back to sitting around campfires as kids and 
and then moving throughout life, story is what moves us. That's why when we go to a, a movie that has all these great special effects, but the story's no good, most people don't like the movie because we resonate with story. And this story is one of the great stories in American history. People, a lot of people don't know this story, but it's a, it's a love story. And that's a, another thing that's just amazing about it is that Ulysses and Julia Grant, they're an interesting couple. I fell in love with them and they loved each other. During the war, they used to sneak off together and sit in the corner of the mess tent and hold hands like teenagers. <laughs> you know, they were in their 40s. And so another officer would walk in and they'd get all embarrassed like they had been caught <laughs> like teenagers. But that's the kind of love affair that they had. And that that remained all the way up until the final days where Grant was giving, you know, most people who are dying of throat cancer are going to be in a bed. They're going to be under some sort of pain killer and they're just going to be resting. Grant gave the last year of his life in total pain because of his love for his wife and his kids and that's a tremendous love story. Yeah, there's a there's a storyline in here um of real service um in the midst of real struggle and real sacrifice in the midst of um of real pain. There's a lot here for um, for those who want to be encouraged in their own life um, in terms of a call to perseverance. Um, yes. There's also there's also the storyline in here, and you alluded to this earlier, but I want to unpack this a little bit more in terms of in terms of something that rhymes across generations. So this you take us back to a time that really does rhyme with our own time. I, I like the way that you phrase that, and I know that's a, 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 a nod there to Mark Twain. Um, how did Grant confront the lost cause narrative following the end of the Civil War. I mean, because I feel like we might learn from that today. There's power in good leadership and truth-telling in a time when false narratives abound. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. Really, the, the soul of this story is that Grant was not a, an abolitionist. Now, his father was a staunch abolitionist, Jesse Root Grant. But Grant was not an abolitionist before the war. But as he saw the war, uh, the slavery tearing apart the country, and then when the Confederacy fired on its own government in a rebellion, uh, that was it for him. He became a, overnight an abolitionist. And yet he grew in that over the course of the war as he followed the lead of Abraham Lincoln. And he really adopted Lincoln's thoughts about freedom and about equality of all people. And in the end, Grant said, uh, listen, and he wrote this at the end of his memoirs. He said, these people, most of these slaves were brought to this shore uh, without their consent. But now that they're here, and now that we've fought a war, which, as Lincoln said, was a second birth of freedom in the famous Gettysburg Address, well, now we have to treat each other as equals. We have to treat each other with respect. We have to say that the Declaration of Independence and the promises of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are for every people. It doesn't matter what creed, race, religion, background. That is what uh, it has to happen in a free society. It has to happen in a representative government. And so Grant, as president, was 
amazing in pushing through. He pushed through the anti-KKK laws. He uh, ordered the new Justice Department that developed under his administration to go after the KKK. And his attorney general totally put the KKK out of business for another 25 years. He uh, pushed through the Reconstruction Acts. But he also pushed through, and this was the big tragedy, I think, of that whole thing, is that he pushed through the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that had many of the same uh, freedoms that were guaranteed 80 years later, 90 years later, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court overturned that, and it was the great tragedy of Grant's career because all of those things got pushed aside, and we had 80 years of Jim Crow in America. It's so sad that we could have had peace, like Grant said as his uh, campaign slogan, let us have peace, if we would have embraced the laws that were pushed through during the Grant administration, we might have had peace. But, you know, at least it was kind of the first glimmer of peace, and it took the country 80 years then to work through to finally get to the Civil Rights Act uh, at the end of the Civil Rights Movement. Wow, there's so much here. Um, Craig, it's a it's a gift to be able to read history in this way because narrative is powerful and we are able to remember stories much better than, you know, lists of dates and, and places and times. So thank you for taking us into this time period of history that rhymes so well with our own times. And thank you for, um, you know, helping us uh, see into the life of former president, a, a general but a person who loved his life well, uh, loved his wife well, and I think there's a demonstration there for folks. Um, he lived so sacrificially across so many different fronts, right, in his service to this nation, um, in the military, and as uh, as president. Um, but then this way in which he served his own family and served other fellow human beings through these efforts to make life genuinely better. Uh, all with, you know, all toward the hope of peace. So thank you. Uh, The book is excellent. It is Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. You can find Craig and the book at von Busek, B-U-S-E-C-K dot com. Craig, thanks so much. Thank you, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. We'll be right back. As we enter into this day as the people who know God, I want you to just consider that for just a moment. You enter this day as a person who knows God. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, then you enter this day as a person who knows God. And I don't want to, you know, refer to that as like, you know, some Gnostic special gnosis. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the real knowledge of a real God through a real Savior by the power of a real spirit. And there's so much of that that's like a mystery, but there's a lot of it that's not a mystery because God has revealed himself to us. Um, and I, I want you to recognize just how extraordinary a truth it is when we say, I'm a person who knows God. Now, I don't know him fully, although I am fully known, but the day will come when I will know him fully, even as I am fully known. How cool is that? But God makes himself known. And so I am a person who is in Christ, 
and animated by the Holy Spirit, and I know God. I know God, and I stand in position to turn to him and say, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. If that is the heartfelt ache of your life, if you hunger and thirst to know God more, God stands ready to make himself more fully known. How cool is that? How cool is that? So, I yearn to know God more. I hope you yearn to know God more. And then let us turn with all expectancy to the God who has revealed himself. Yes, generally in creation, but, but fully and, and formally and personally in Jesus Christ. And given us the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that we might know him more. And the very power of the Holy Spirit that opens the, the, the heart and the mind to be able to actually perceive and receive the truth of who God is. Oh, I want to know him more. Let us hunger and thirst today to know God more, that in knowing him, we would love him. And in loving him, we would then serve, turn to serve him. How do we do that? We walk our faith out into the world that God so loves. And we do so in ways that reveal to others that there is a God who can be known, and he is good. There is a God who can be known, and he is good. Have a great day. And God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.